Friday. Okay, we've got two sermons or two uh, Sundays to go before we begin our final descent into uh, Christmas. And today marks Advent, the beginning of waiting. Nobody likes waiting. We try to avoid waiting as best we can. Waiting for a train, waiting in a traffic jam. How many of you would prefer to get there a little later but keep driving through a longer route because you feel you're making progress than to wait in the jam? We hate waiting. And and fortunately, we live in a marvellous world that does everything to avoid the wait. The microwave helps us avoid the wait for meals. Faster broadband, (laughs) as if, would help us wait for our uh, internet page to load. Super delivery on Amazon. You can pay these days for fast-track boarding onto a Ryanair flight that sits on the runway for the next three hours. But you can pay to board quickly all the same to save yourselves the wait. We've lost the sense of waiting because we live in a world of rush. But it is a reminder that the wait that Advent asks us to think about is not just a wait for the baby that has already come. It's not just reliving those days when only a few, as it were, were waiting for the coming of the Messiah the first time. It is a reminder that we live as Christians in the wait. We are those called to be waiting for the one who is coming. And that's the wait that you and I are asked to engage in. But what does it mean for me, for you, for us together to wait? To wait for the one who will appear Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. What does it mean for me to be waiting for Him to come? Is there a place I should stand? A queue that I need to form? Is there a ticket I need to obtain? A a t-shirt that I must wear in order to mark myself out as someone who is waiting for the one who is coming? Fortunately, Jesus knew our propensity to hate idle waiting. So the kind of waiting that the Bible always talks about is one full of active, vibrant living. We think about it as a contradiction in terms. For us, waiting is sort of stillness and hanging in there till it happens. The waiting the Bible calls us to is one that's alive and vibrant. It's a life to be lived that shows every day that we are waiting and longing for the one to come. Jesus put it like this at the end of his life. He'd explained to his disciples that he was going to go on ahead. He was going to prepare a place, a place that would have uh, many rooms. And then as he goes, he will come back. There would be this time of waiting that we find ourselves in. And Jesus said, this is what you have to do while you wait. Do not stand waiting around, but go Go and make disciples, followers of me from all kinds of nations or literally people groups. So in our country, go and uh, and make disciples from the teenagers, the adults, the over 50s, the under 40s, the, the whatever it might be. Go. That's the kind of waiting. Teach them to obey everything. And the final bit that's on the slide, I'll be with you to the end of the age. I'll be with you until the waiting is over. 
And so any idea that the waiting that God's calling us to is a sitting around kind of wait, Jesus knocked on uh, its head right there. And so Jesus talked about it time and time again. Another uh, a moment just soon after uh, his resurrection, when the disciples were all locked away, Jesus came and said, look, peace be with you, but now, now, now I'm sending you. This is the wait. Get on and wait for me to come again by being sent. Just as I've been sent into this world, now I'm sending you. Go and receive the Holy Spirit for that purpose. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me, Jesus said, will we'll do. They'll do what I've been doing. You wait by carrying on the work that I have begun. He who has faith in me, he will do what I've been doing. He will carry on the mission that I started. In fact, as this mission grows and the Holy Spirit comes, you'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. That's the kind of weight we are called to. And we call it the church. We call it the church. And there are many, many descriptions in the Bible about what the church is like. I want us to think about the church for a few moments this morning because that's what we're called to do as we wait. And we're going to use the the, the description that Jesus used about the church that picks up our theme of the light coming into the world. Jesus said this about the church, you are the light of the world. We wait for his coming by being the light of the world. The mark that we are waiting for the light to come is by being that light now. Every flicker of light that you are in this world is a declaration that one day the light will fully come. Hallelujah. Every flicker of light in your life and mine is a declaration that it's coming, an anticipation that one day the light will fully be here. You are the light of the world, and there's only one thing that light can do, isn't it? What does it shine? Light doesn't read the newspaper or watch the television. Light doesn't busy itself with meetings. All light can do is shine. What does it mean for us to be that light exhibiting that mark of those who are waiting for the true light to come. All we're asked to do is to shine. And that, for me, brings great hope, because there is a universal law, isn't there, that people in darkness gravitate towards the light. As human beings, we have a natural preference uh, for light over darkness. When uh, I was in Kenya some years ago at a Happy Home Orphanage, which was uh, about uh, 150 miles outside Kasumu, miles away from, from running water in terms of pipe water, electricity and so on, right out in the country, where this orphanage had been built all of wood, a rabbit warren, a health and safety absolute nightmare. And, and there we were uh, with uh, 30, 40 uh, children that uh, had no mums and dads. And we spent uh, a week or so, ten days there. The daytime was fine. People were all over this rabbit warren of rooms and, and out spreading outside as well. But then very quickly, as it does in Africa, the night would fall. Almost, uh, almost without notice. Suddenly it was like the next minute was dark. And there would be one gas lamp 
at the back of the compound and one gas lamp at the front and everyone would huddle around the lights. There's something about the light that draws us. If you are walking in the country and it gets dark and you're disorientated and you've lost your way, only a fool will walk the opposite way to a light in the distance. Like a flower reaches to the window to gain a little bit more light. Like a moth sort of uh, flies around the lights in our room. So people are drawn towards that which is light. Now there is a spiritual issue that Jesus talked about when that doesn't happen. Jesus said people's lives are so dark, when the light comes they'll want to cower away. Maybe like you do when someone switches the light on when you're in the middle of a sleep and it's too bright. There will be those who love the darkness who will cower away from the light. But I do believe that many, many, many people would be drawn to the light if only the light shone. Many people who are fed up with living in a dark fog these days, not knowing which way's up, not knowing what matters anymore, if we could be a light in that darkness, then like moths fly around it, people would fly around us. What does it mean to be that light? Ever so quickly, just in a few minutes... Take light as an acrostic, the L. What does it mean to be light? Uh, It means to love. What does it mean? It means to L for love. People are desperate for love in our world. Fewer people are getting married, yet the divorce rate is still rising. So less people are finding someone that they can live with for an extended period of time. As a result of that, four and a half million new homes are going to be built in Britain over the coming ten years, even though the population rate is falling. So there will be a huge increase in people who, for whatever reason, all kinds of reasons, are finding themselves living on their own. Isolation and loneliness, if it's a problem now, will be a much greater problem in 10 years' time. And there's no one who's indifferent to the question, am I loved? Do I really matter? Julia Roberts, uh, the actor, I've felt incredible loneliness in my life. I've known great despair. And what is the point of having a great job or something spectacular if you have no one to share it with? Unless you have someone, it's pointless. It's vapour. It's the same cry the world over. We're looking to discover, to find people that will love us. And and if you you don't feel very uh, successful, then it's easy to buy into the lie that if only I'm successful, then I will feel loved. The worst thing, I think, is to be successful in life, to get to the top, and to discover it still didn't bring what you thought it might. Richard Higgins, the crime writer, put it like this. He was asked, what one piece of advice uh, did he wish he'd been given when he was 18 years old? I wish, he said, someone had told me that there is nothing at the top of the ladder. We think we want success. But what we really want is significance, and love makes us significant. Who's going? 
Who's going to demonstrate the transforming power of love in our world, in this day, if we don't do that? If we, the people of God, imbued with the love of God, don't love people back to life, then I fear no one else will. And people are desperate for love. And I wonder, if we became a church where that love was so obvious, whether people in this desert starved, love-starved desert would not be drawn like a moth to a flame. Trouble is, though, we could be the most loving people on earth. But unless somehow we get involved, people would never know. What happens in here is a great secret, isn't it? I was thinking um, just yesterday, on the pillars on the way in, did you notice anything? Both of you, well done. On the way out, go and have a look. And I was thinking, uh, what could we put in those, in those, whatever you call them, rack things, I don't know. What could we, what could we put in them? What would be interesting? The last thing I want to put in there is something preachy. They'll think, crikey, they're preaching to me on the street. I'd hate to go inside. Imagine what they'll do to me there. But what would they, what, what, what kind of thing might we say that would make them connect some way? And one of the things I thought about the people that just walk up and down London Road that perhaps live here, that, that 95% of people have no image of this moment, do they, who live in London Road? absolutely no idea, A, what the inside of the building might look like, but B, what it looks like right now. It's pretty ugly right now, so maybe that's best. But, what, what do we do that makes the connection between what we're about and what, what they're about? It can be a couple of yards, but it's like a universe apart, isn't it? I, I was so struck a few years ago when we had our 150th anniversary about how, how the worlds are, are, are far apart. Every, every um, three times a year, we send out our community news. Okay, so it's just a little leaflet. It usually has some of the service details and, and something to help people think about something uh, about their life. And we send it to 2,000 uh, churches, 2,000 homes around this area. So the Christmas one is being done. Now it'll go out over the next couple of weeks to ra- around the area. Very little response. And not surprisingly, it would be too easy, wouldn't it, if a hundred people came because we put a leaflet in the door. Most people go, oh, they can't connect with it at all. There's no, no point of contact for them. That's just the church doing its thing, whatever its thing is. But occasionally people will come in because they've read something on the community news and that for us makes it worthwhile. Jesus went out for the one when there were 99 left. Hey, if we find one or two, then it's all worthwhile. Then, when we were celebrating our 150th anniversary, we sent a leaflet out, same, same kind of leaflet, to all the homes, and we said, hey, we're having a party, do you want to come? And a hundred or more people came. What are they saying? They're saying, hey, we don't understand what you guys do on a church on a Sunday morning, your services stuff, that's weird, we don't get that, but we do understand a party, and if you have a party, we'll come. To our shame, we haven't had enough parties since, I fear. Standing here all of a sudden feeling rather guilty about it. You know, suddenly when you're preaching, well, you wouldn't know. Sometimes when you're preaching, you think, flipping out. We messed that up, didn't we? Do you see the point? Because somehow we've got to get involved. You see, they love parties. They do parties for all kinds of things. They understand party. But they don't understand service. 
So maybe, instead of expecting them to do more service, we ought to do more party. Yeah, well, so a, few of you, a few of you non-Christian people are going, yeah, party. The rest of us are going, oh, no, 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 no. Party? Party? Last time I went to a party, I was six. Party. Maybe we have a sermon series on all the parties in the Bible, a lot of feasting. Jesus went to more parties than, than, uh, than we've had cooked dinners. He lived by the party. And somehow we've got to get involved. It's no good being a light and shining if we don't get involved. What does it mean to get involved? You're the salt of the earth. Get involved. Maybe that's why Tiddlywinks and Toy Library have been the most successful adult evangelistic strategy in the last five years because we've got involved with people. We haven't said come to our service. We've said come and do normal things like normal people. And we've made connections with them and we've loved them through it. Get involved. Say, so what about the person who's last to leave the office because he or she doesn't really want to go home? Hey, do you get involved? What about the older person who's lost their lifelong partner and sees no future for themselves now? Do you get involved? What about the mum who's bringing up two small children? It's three o'clock in the afternoon. She has not had an adult conversation with one person all day and fears that might be the story until she goes to bed. Do you get involved? Breathe, the stress, the lonely, the hurting, the anxious. Light penetrates the darkness. Do we get involved? It's a challenge for all of us. And you say, well, I don't get involved because I don't know what to say. Nine times out of ten, maybe 99 times out of 100, you don't have to say anything. It's about being there. You will be amazed what people will say to you if you live in a way that says, I'm open to hearing from you. Carrie and I are amazed by the people who will come to our house and within minutes, if you act like you're open and you're interested, all kinds of things will pour out. Even the pizza delivery man. We just want a pizza, go away. Offloading. Because they've got nobody to talk to. If only we could live with a little t-shirt that says, yeah, I'm open. Although maybe most of the time we don't want to, we live closed. It's a huge temptation in the rush of life to live closed. I am more often fearful that I would be too busy, too much in a rush, living too closed to have spotted Zacchaeus up the tree. I live with the fear that I'd be too busy in too much of a rush that by the time the woman got to the well, I would have left. What does it mean for our light to shine? It means getting involved. And then there's the other end of the, the word, the T, about truth. There are some things that just need to be said still these days, aren't there? Things that, that need to be said. It needs to be said that God loves everyone. It needs to be said that he loved everyone so much that he sent his only son that much to die for them, for you, for me. Doesn't that need saying? Time to be truthful if we want the light to shine. And it was a terrible, terrible mistake 100 years ago when the church decided it would not be truthful anymore. 
After the 18th century and the 19th century revivals, when the church had known such incredible power in our country and in America and in around the world, in their wisdom, they thought, let's not be truthful anymore. They thought they were doing the right thing. You see, the world was beginning to believe that science, modernity, that which is modern, could solve all people's ills. And so people were longing for the scientist to come up with all the answers. And science was beginning to uh, uh, rise, and we were, the church that is, were beginning to say, okay, well, if we want the, the gospel to appeal to a scientific world, then perhaps we've got to get rid of the virgin birth, because that's not very scientific. It's certainly not a repeatable experiment. We've got to get rid of the resurrection because there's no volunteers to try and repeat that experiment. And so we'll get rid of the things that aren't really scientific anymore in, in our new way of thinking. So you had all kinds of very influential church leaders that dumbed it all down. No longer a virgin birth, no longer a resurrection, no longer the miracles, this, that and the other. And what happened to the church? Might have been up there in terms of uh, percentage of people engaged with the church. Over the whole century, it went from being up there to right down here. If it wasn't for the world wars, which stopped the hemorrhage, because in times of crisis, people went back to what they traditionally knew, and so the church grew in strength, at least for a period of time, that hemorrhaging would have been even quicker, I suspect. We've taken a hundred years to begin to recover to what some people thought it would be a good idea. We didn't quite tell the truth. We just made it a bit more palatable. Now, there's a huge attempt for us to do all that again. You see, interesting now, people are going, oh, well, science can't answer all the questions and people are really into the miracles and stuff. So miracles are fine. They're back in. Okay, so the virgin birth might be weird. We might not understand it, but there's all kinds of weird things we don't understand and people are much more willing to accept that these days than they were back then. So we bring all those things back in. The danger today is this. In order to make our message palatable to our world, we go, well, we're not going to make too much of a fuss about Jesus being the only way. Because that's what gets us into trouble. Back then, it was the miracles that got the church into trouble, so they ripped them out. Now, it'll be the exclusivity of Jesus that will get us into all kinds of trouble. So the temptation is to dumb it down. We will empty this church faster than you can imagine if we dumb Jesus down. If we don't dumb him down, the ride will get rockier and harder, I suspect. But it's time for the truth, if we want to be the light. And fourthly, it's time to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And we've made holiness really boring. We've made holiness seem like a miserable way to live. And yet the, the, the descriptive word that's most often there in the Bible to do with holiness is the word, three-letter word, joy. Someone said joy, absolutely joy. Now you wouldn't get that impression from the average Christian meeting that actually joy is what will flood forth if we become holy again. What do we mean? Just being like Jesus. Jesus was set apart. He was holy. Just be like him. And joy, Jesus promised, would flow from deep within. In this serious, miserable world, we could do with a lot more joy. If we don't provide the joy... The funniest thing ever will be live at the Apollo. 
which is funny sometimes. But not life-sustaining. Life-sustaining like the joy that comes from heaven. We've got to get something back for the light to shine. And then, you know, G in the middle. Hey, if you get all that right, I'm convinced. Let's skip a few verses. I'm convinced that there'll be growth. Now, people often say, and I hear it all the time, well, you know, God's not into numbers, is he? Really? God's not into numbers. We've got so used to defending the fact that, 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 that growth is not our normal experience, that we can find ourselves easily... Dev- it's not about numbers. God's not into numbers. And yet Jesus tells a story. He tells a story of a man that's got 99 sheep. He's got enough lamb chop for him and his family for the rest of their lives. But it's not enough because he could have a hundred. And so he is reckless, almost reckless, with the 99 to get one more. You notice that? You could have fully understood the guy saying, I've got 99, I have to stay here and look after them. I can't afford to lose any more. He's reckless with the 99 because he could have 100. And as if they didn't get it, Jesus tells another story. He says there's this woman, she's got 10 and she loses one coin. And instead of uh, guarding the 9 for all she's worth, she sweeps the whole house, turns everything upside down. Now how many things do you lose if you turn your house upside down? She's reckless with what she has because 9's not enough, there could be 10. And God's like that. Because every single person matters to him. We count numbers. We count people. Why? Because people count. And God put a book called Numbers in the Bible just to remind us. Everyone matters. And if this church stopped at 100, you and I wouldn't have been allowed in. Because everyone matters. And somehow we've got to long for God to do something that we find hard to believe. That if we are recklessly committed to those that are outside, maybe what's happening inside would take more care of itself. And so it's not that quality didn't matter. Jesus says, well, we'll have both. We'll have quality and we'll have quantity. Go and make disciples from all people groups. Old people, young people, uh, people that are, uh, are defined in whatever kind of grouping you choose to put people into. And then teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. We've got to be light for these things to happen. What's all this got to do with the Spirit? I want you to notice as you read the Christmas story over these weeks, hope you'll get your Bibles out, hope you'll read the stories. They're, they're painfully familiar So read them slowly and carefully. Don't rely on the cows by candlelight service to remind you of them, although it will. And you will notice that the Holy Spirit is mentioned an awful lot. Something new was happening. And if you read Luke's account of the Christmas story, you'll hear the Holy Spirit coming up over and over again. And then you see at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus... The Holy Spirit coming up again and again and again. Jesus was baptized and it says the Holy Spirit came on him in the form of a dove. 
The next paragraph, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. Then the next uh, section, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit and began his ministry. What's Luke saying? Luke's saying that this new thing that God is doing is only possible as the Holy Spirit makes it possible. So it's no surprise whatsoever But at the end of Luke's telling the gospel story about Jesus, he writes another story. The work of Jesus through the early disciples. He wrote about the work of Jesus in Jesus' own body, as it were. Now he's writing about the work of Jesus through the new body, his church, through those early young disciples. It is no surprise that we hear Jesus saying, wait just for a moment. Whatever you do, don't try and do this without the Holy Spirit. Wait, the Spirit will come and empower you to carry on what Jesus began. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us this Advent that we might be the light, waiting for the light by being the light because the light is coming and will come and we've got to get ourselves ready, and we've got a community to get ready, and we've got a world to get ready by being light here and now. I need the Holy Spirit this Christmas to live like a light. I might be the only one here who needs that. You might be able to rise above all this Christian uh, Christmas nonsense and live gloriously free of it all and live a beautiful light in the darkness over these next four weeks. But I guess if you're like me, you need the Holy Spirit. Let's stand, shall we, everybody? Let's stand. And we're asking, Lord, that you would pour out your Spirit that is a gift to us. How much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And we ask for the Holy Spirit, not that we might have a nice, warm, glowing feeling, not that we might boast about our spiritual gifts, not that we might uh, focus on some introspective new kind of worship. We ask for the Holy Spirit that we might be light in this dark world. That we might be the church and so actively wait. Come, Lord Jesus, pour out your Spirit, we pray.